by faith, I'm gonna finish Ephesians 4 tonight. Hey, how many took their five-fold ministry survey? How many were surprised? <laughs> Ms. Eloise, Ms. Gail. Okay, how many, how many apostles do we have? Are under the office of apostle gifts. Okay, how many um, prophets? Ah, Sister Garland, I love it. How many evangelists? Ah, that's interesting. How many pastors? Sister Eloise, I could see that. How many teachers? Oh, yeah, my job is in jeopardy here. Can tell you. That's good. That's good. Actually, um, went th- last Thursday night, we went to celebrate recovery in Franklin and heard Fabian give his testimony. Um, if you were not able to go, that was really good, and you missed it. But he's going to actually teach for me when we're on vacation at the end of May, and I'm hoping he'll get part of his testimony then. So, uh, so y'all don't want to miss that. I know we won't be here, but you don't want to miss Fabian's testimony. And what he had, this is probably like the first time you're actually speaking at church, right? Mama Gil, you're going to be here, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. So it's going to be good. So that's the, end of the, that's the end of May. Okay. So let's get started. We're in Ephesians 4. For those of you who are new, we've been going through Ephesians for quite a while now. We thought it was going to be one chapter on Wednesday, but I think I started out good. And I don't know what happened. Man, even as I was studying these last 17 through 32, I was like, okay, I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to really make it brief so I can really, you know, four pages of notes. So let me get to it. <laughs> it's good stuff, good stuff though. Okay, Ephesians 4 verse 17. Um, it says this. I think this is the NIV. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. I want to read it from the message too, real quick, because I I like, I'm just going to take verses 17 through 19. And the message says this, and so I insist that, and God backs me up on this, that there be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch with not only God, but with reality itself. How many know those kind of people? How many sometimes are those kind of people? Yeah, <laughs> they, they can't think straight anymore. They're feeling no pain. They let themselves go into sexual obsession, addicted to every sort of perversion. Um, so here's what, actually, if you're taking notes, I'm going to break this into four parts, these last few. And so I'm going to give it all a D word. So this was differences. So let's talk, let's talk about this. Now, Paul is writing this to the Gentile church. Remember, this was, remember at the beginning where he talks about, he says, I'm preaching to the Gentiles who are now the same. The mystery is that now we're the same as the Jews. And I know that's hard to explain, but remember, he's still talking to the same church who's saying, so for all this time, you were not the Jewish nation. You, all of this, these promises of God, all of this was not for you. Now, the mystery was revealed. It is for you, which, by the way, is for us. We're the Gentiles. And so he's saying that, but he's saying, just because you are now uh, a part of this mystery of salvation, don't forget that you're still Gentiles and you're going to still want to live like them. Because that's what you've come out of. And he's saying you can't do that anymore. So the difference is here is this. He's writing to the Gentile church. Yet it does not, see, does not see them as Gentiles any longer. Paul doesn't. Earlier in his letter, he had shown that the wall of separation had been torn down. There's no difference between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. They're all children of Abraham by faith and not by lineage. 
In verse 18 and 19, Paul defines the underlying differences between the Gentile and the believers by using specific words and phrase. He says this, they are darkened, they are separated, they are ignorance that's in them. Hardening of their hearts, they lost all sensitivity. Um, Let me see. And I think the last phrase describes the whole problem, a continual lust for more. How can there be changed life without a changed lifestyle? The word ignorance here, when he's using that, they're, ign- they're, they're living in ignorance, or, or they're ignorant. The word in the original Greek goes beyond not knowing. But it refers to unwillingness to know. So it's, it's, it's different than just not knowing. Because there's things that we just don't know. But there's also, there's something that we know, but we are, there's a willingness to not know. You know, I, we say this phrase a lot of times, like, ignorance is bliss. I didn't really understand that until Katrina happened because before Katrina, hurricanes meant evacuate and invocation. After Katrina, all of a sudden, my ignorance was gone. And I realized that this was no day in the park, right? And so before I knew what a hurricane could really mean, it was fun. And so what Paul's saying is here is like, look, there are things that you guys didn't know and now you know, but there are things that you know but you are unwilling to know. For example, well, I don't even want to get ahead of myself, so let me not do that. I'm going to get off track here. I'm going to get to that toward the end of this chapter. Okay. So, so I'll put this. Let's see. Not knowing, but it refers to unwillingness to know. In other words, unsaved people don't respond to the gospel because their hearts are hard. Their minds are darkened, and they just don't want to know the truth. They don't respond because their hearts are hard. They just don't know. So what Paul is saying, I put specifically to LCC and Berwick, I believe he is saying that we have to change our way of thinking. Just saying, hey, this is how we are. We're Cajun is not going to work anymore. We're not in that standard of living. Our standard is Jesus. I don't think Jesus was Cajun. He was Jewish. And with all their cultural differences, right? But sometimes we get lost in that. You know, we get, we start defining who we are and, ex- and, and excusing our behavior. And so Paul is saying to the church then, he's saying, hey guys, listen, now just because you're a Gentile nation, the mystery of the gospel is now that Jesus, the same rights that the, the people of Abraham had, which is still in my mind, is I have to really remember what this might would mean. It's like growing up thinking one way your whole life and then realizing that that was the wrong way of thinking. So this was, this was not even just, hey, I'm telling you this is the truth, believe me. This was a whole cultural shift, okay? So Paul's coming back to them saying, hey, guys, listen, you cannot be like the Gentile unbelievers anymore. You can't say, well, I'm a believer, but I'm still Gentile, so I'm going to still, you know, give way to whatever I want to do because I'm Gentile. I'm not Jewish. I think Paul would be saying to our church today, hey, guys, just because you can just say what you want and speak your, your truth in love, you can't just keep doing that when it's causing not edification of the body, when it's not building someone up. He's saying just because, you know, you guys got saved and you haven't been saved all your life and now you are, that can't be an excuse to not live with our standard being Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, I have to check myself sometimes because sometimes, you know, I forget that my standard is Jesus and I'm thinking I'm going to compare myself to Fabian, I might be doing pretty good, right? And we do that. Well, you know, I mean, I had a bad day, but I mean, Tracy had a worse day, so I must be doing pretty good. No, Tracy's not my standard. Fabian's not my standard. Jesus is my standard. And I think that's what Paul was really saying here. He was really saying, hey, guys, I know you're Gentiles and now you're believers, but your standard is Jesus. 
And I can't even imagine the church back then how they must have even still felt toward the Jewish people. Because remember, it was a great divide for, from the beginning of time. It was a great divide. And so I can't even imagine how they still felt. And so Paul's coming saying, hey, just because you're Gentiles, you still don't need to be trying to separate yourself that we're not Jewish by actual sin. That makes sense? Okay. I hope, I hope you guys get that. All right. So our standard is Jesus. That doesn't mean we are a doormat, that, and it doesn't mean that our main character, okay, it doesn't mean that we're a doormat is what I'm trying to say. But it does mean our main character is love. Just because I'm a Christian don't mean I'm going to let you take advantage of me. Just because I'm a Christian don't mean I'm going to let you talk to me any kind of way. If you know me at all, I'm going to demand respect because I'm going to respect you and I'm going to demand that back. That's the seeds I sow. That's what I'm going to reap. And so if you come to me with not respect, that's just me personally, I'm going to really demand that in a very loving way because that's my harvest. And see, sometimes, this is a whole different subject, but sometimes the devil tries to bring a harvest to you that you didn't sow. And we just accept it. And in Galatians, God says, do not be deceived. He's not mocked. Whatsoever you sow, you will reap. That's why it's important to reap good, to sow good seeds. Because what you sow, you're going to reap. So if you're sowing tithing, you're going to reap the blessings of God. That's just a, it's a command. It's a, it's a principle, right? And so sometimes when the devil starts coming at you and he's affecting your finances, I told y'all what I do, but when he's affecting your finances, he's like, wait a minute, this is not my harvest. I'm not accepting this. If I plant corn in the ground and corn don't come up, I'm going back to the store saying, I want my money back. I didn't plant turnip greens. I planted corn, right? But how many times spiritually do we do that? We, pl- we sow love, we sow respect, we sow loyalty, and then people come and will treat us another way, and, and they're not the enemy. It's the devil. And I will say, I'm so sorry, not today, Satan. Nice try. I didn't plant that. That's not my harvest. I'm not receiving it. And you know, God's going to honor his principles. You know, I, I, I know somebody, I ain't going to say no names, they're not here, but I know somebody that, um, you know, they'll get a bill from the doctor. They'll fuss and fuss and fuss and then pay it. I'm like, well, you don't even know, like, won't you call? I don't think that's right. Well, call and see. I'm just going to pay it. Like, you know, they count on people like you to just make money because I'm calling. Miss Debbie said, I'm calling. I want itemized bill. I want to see because they're human too. They can make mistakes. And so a lot of times we just have to investigate. What's well, the same thing spiritually? The devil's handing you a bill and you're just paying it. And that's not even your bill. You're being charged for stuff in the spirit realm that you didn't even spend. And we have to make sure that whatever the devil's bringing to our lives is not what we sowed. We reap what we sow. Now, if you're not sowing good seeds, you need to go ahead and start repenting right now. And asking, listen, I told my boys this from real little. You know, Hayden was the one, but he would always get get in trouble. And I said, listen, baby, I'm telling you something right now. You're going to have a son one day. And you see see your harvest right here? This is what you're going to reap. Now, do you want your son to listen to you or not listen to you? And he's like, three, to listen. What did you need to start listening? So that one day when your son says, when your son's not listening, you can say, oh, no, devil, that's not my harvest. That is not my harvest. I sow good seeds, right? And so I teach my kids that because it's a principle of God. Paul's trying to say this to this church here. Listen, just because you're a Gentile don't mean you act like the Gentiles anymore. It doesn't mean you're not Gentile, but it means that's not your standard anymore. Church, just because you are Cajun, Thibodeau, Woodrow, whatever, just because that's not your standard. Your standard is Jesus. And we have to have a character of love. 
after the Father. And it's what would you want to sow because it's what you want to reap, right? All right. Okay. Oh, one more little last thing I put was so good. The word says, okay, they will know that you are my disciples. Let me just go back. Our standard is Jesus. That doesn't mean we're a doormat, but it does mean that our main character should be love. By the way, love, if you take a notes, is the greatest weapon we have against the enemy. Period. I know I say that a lot. They will know that we are his disciples by the love we have for one another. We cannot use the excuse we didn't know. The word says, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. You know, we quote that scripture and we say this a lot. The truth will set us free. So we have freedom from truth. But we forget about the first part of that scripture that says, you will know the truth. You can't be free if you don't know. So you have to get into your word. You have to listen for the Holy Spirit. You have to know the truth. The truth will set you free, but you have to know the truth. You have to know the truth. There's nothing more comical to me than when I'm talking to somebody who's usually not saved and they got in trouble with the law and they want to start telling me all their rights. And when I was teaching high school, I was teaching history for a semester and uh, we were going over the Constitution and we got to the amendments, you know, and the First Amendment is the freedom of speech. And so I said, I'm going to tell you guys something, because see, I was just a long-term substitute, because fire me, I didn't care. But I said, so I just use a lot of the word of God, because that really is our standard. So I said, um, guys, I'm going to tell you something they don't teach you in school. So this is, pay attention, this is important. They teach you about the constitutional rights, and you absolutely have the right to freedom of speech. But let me tell you what they never teach you. So I'm going to teach you right now. There's consequences to that freedom. And you want to, and so, this is, I have something about lesson. You want to holler about the, I can say what I want to say? Absolutely. But there's consequences. And nobody wants to tell you that. You go ahead and threaten the president. Go ahead and make a threat before you get on a plane. You can holler First Amendment all you want. Your butt's going to jail. Because there are consequences to what comes out of our mouth. Well, that's the same thing spiritually. There are consequences to what comes out of our mouth. And you know, if our standard is Jesus, you know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. And God, when he spoke, he created. So if our words create, what are you creating? Are you creating life? Are you speaking death? We're creating. We have creative power in our words. Sticks and stones may break my bones. Words will always surely hurt. Is how that should go. Because words have power. All right. So anyway, you know the truth. The truth will set you free. All right. Verses, 19, uh, verses 20 through 24 says this. I'm going to actually just read it from the message, Brother Donald. So he's saying this. He's saying before he says, uh, feeling no pain, let them, they, let, they go into sexual obsession, addiction to every sort of perversion. Then he goes on right here. But that's no life for you. You learned Christ. My assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Since then, we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I do mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life. A God-fashioned life. A life renewed from the inside and working itself into the conduct, into your conduct as God accurately reproduces himself in your character. I love that because you know what he's saying there is that there is, okay, now that you're saved, now that you're living for Christ, now that you're trying to do right, there is nothing about your old life that's going to benefit you. Nothing. And if it did, why would you looking for a new life? 
See, it doesn't work. God's principles are universal. So it's his principles are good whether you're living for him or not. His principles are good. I've seen businessmen who were as crooked as a day is long give to the Lord and their business prosper because God's principles are his principles, right? And so, because it's a principle. So God says, I need you to reproduce my character inside of you. So that way when people see you, they see me. And you know, Paul is telling this to the, to the church of Ephesus. I, I, I'm acting like when I'm studying that he's talking to me in the church in Berwick. And I think he's saying this, because we have got to be different. Because there's a lot of people out there, even church people, and I'm not judging, but there's a lot of people out there that I can't really tell if they're different from the world or not. I was in Walmart yesterday, and I happened to be in line, and Miss Lorraine, she's not here tonight, the, one of the, our new ladies came up behind me, and we started talking about the goodness of the Lord. While the lady was checking me out, and we were just, she was just talking about how God is already healing her body. And, and she, so we, I, we just kind of got lost in this conversation about how good God is. And the lady behind the counter, she says, I, I'm sorry, I was eavesdropping. I just can't help. She goes, can I tell you what the Lord's done for me too? And she ends up, she, I was like, so we, were, so we were listening, we were rejoicing with her. And she said, what church shall I go to? And so we told her, and she goes, I go to Brother Randy's church, Promised Land. And so we just, and I just thought, you know what? People will know you're different because you talk different. You look different. You smile different. You know, there are just some nice people. There are people that I run into sometimes, and my spirit just connects. I'm like, I don't know who they are, but I know whose they are, right? Because my spirit, same thing if they're not, though. Sometimes my spirit is, I can tell, they're not of the same kingdom, right? And so we're supposed to be like that, but how many times do we see people, and we don't know the difference either way? Now, I don't know if that's on us or them, but we, Paul is saying here, hey, guys, we got to be different. We got to just not only say that we belong to Jesus, we got to belong to Jesus, right? We got to look like him. When me and my two sisters get together, all three of us look a lot alike, um, especially before Holly colored her hair dark, but we all look a lot alike. And so people, when we're all three together, people will say this to us all the time. I can tell y'all are sisters. I'm like, really? How? And they're like, because y'all look alike. Like what well, I didn't know, you know? I'm like, how, do you, how can you tell? Because y'all look alike. Well, you know what? That's what people really should be seeing about us. Like, what if they would say, not for, not for pride's sake, just because we know the truth. What if people would say, y'all must go to Lighthouse and Berwick? How do you know? I can tell. It's the same love I keep seeing everywhere. It's the same expression I keep seeing everywhere. It's the same positive attitude I keep seeing everywhere. You must be a part of that church. Better yet, you must be a part of that kingdom, because it's really kingdom, right? And so I think Paul's trying to encourage the Ephesians to say that. So, so this, the D for this one is distinctive. So we have to be distinctive. There is something in you that makes you distinctive from unbelievers. When you were saved, you knew that you could not continue in the lifestyle you were in. By the way, if you didn't know, I'm telling you now. You cannot continue in that lifestyle. God has a better plan for your life. He has not a better, the plan for your life, right? Well, Satan has a plan too. Just, I guess it's just whatever you want. Life or death. Um, when you were saved, you knew that you could not continue that lifestyle you were in. You were being disciplined, taught. You were, lear- you were learning the truth. We have to get to the place in our lives where we stop thinking of all the things as Christians that we cannot do, but yet start thinking of all the things that we can do, the promises that we do have. I remember growing up, you know, I told y'all I grew up full gospel, and, and that basically meant everything was a sin, and I do mean everything. And I remember just thinking this. At one point in my life, I was an adult, and I thought, I wonder what would have happened if one time the church 
didn't tell me what I couldn't do. You, you can't go to a skating rink because, you know, they play not Christian music. And then if they play Christian music and they play Carmen, you know, you can't listen to that, right? Uh, you can't play cards. You can't, pl- I mean, just everything. You can't do everything, right? I wonder if one time what would have happened if they would have told me what I could do. Hey, Miss Sarah, you know you can, you can lay hands on the sick and see them recover. You can do that. You know you can cast out demons. You know you can command the dominion to change because you have that. Your atmosphere to change with the dominion. What if somebody told you what you can do instead of always telling us Christians what we can't do? You do have authority. When I woke up this morning to them text, I was like, oh, no, not today. Because somebody along the way told me that I can pray and that my God is the king of the universe. And when they told me that, something in my mind flipped to not just trying to survive, but to thrive in this world. And I'm going to be the devil's worst nightmare. I remember the day I said this. There's a little saying that the devil, you know, he may not know who you are, but when I wake up in the morning, he's like, oh, man, she's up. Yes, it would be best for him to let me sleep. That's why, you know what, I sleep really good at night. And I know Sister Garland don't, and I pray for you too. I sleep really good. But listen, the devil, if, he, if I'm up at night, he wishes I wasn't because I'm mad. And if I'm mad, everybody's getting prayed for. And I'm getting the all out. And I'm, you know, so I'm just like, he's just like, just let her sleep. <laughs> it's just easier for the, my kingdom if she's asleep. But seriously, what if somebody told you what you can do instead of what you can't do? Right? What, what kind of powerhouse would we be as Christians? We need to tell our kids and our grandkids what they can do. Baby, you lay, I tell my boys all the time, and I know this is very carnal and don't judge me. But I tell them all the time that they have authority and power. And it just doesn't mean for laying hands on the sick. It does mean that. But it also means when you take your test. It all, now, you study to show yourself approved. But when you take that test, you call in that harvest. You have authority and power. When they get up to the ball, if you, has anybody ever seen my boys play ball? They're always going to do every time. I didn't tell them to do this, but I told them that they have authority and power. Every time they're going to say a prayer, look up to heaven because they're giving glory to God. And every time you can't hear them, but under their breath, they say, I'm going to hit the fence. Sometimes it's fencing back of them, but they're going to hit the fence. And sometimes they will. But baby, you're going to believe it. You're going to believe it and you're going to die believing that you're going to do what you can do. God's going to give you that. And so tell your kids, tell your grandkids what they can do. They can believe for the impossible. I love what verse 23 says, to be made new in the attitudes of your minds. Because how many knows that's where the battle's at? Right there. Right there is where the battle's at. So we be made new in the attitudes of our mind. Attitudes means, attitude means manner, disposition, feeling, or position. We know that we're on the right track when we see the character of God being displayed through us. When our thoughts get right, I, I don't even know. This is probably such an inaccurate statement, but I'm going to say it. I think if we can get our thoughts under control, we are 90% victorious. I don't know. I just pulled that number out. Maybe 100. I don't know. I just think that if our thoughts is what gets us in trouble most of the time. And if we can catch those thoughts really quick and we can say, oh, no, not today, Satan. I mean, in fact, I bought me a shirt. I was going to wear it tonight, but I went to a funeral today, so I was already dressed. But I bought a shirt. And I wore it this week. It says, not today, Satan. Because I want him to see it. I want everybody to see it. Not today. You're not messing with me today. And when he tries, not today. We have authority and power, guys. Kick those thoughts captive. So, okay, moving on. 
How am I doing on time? I'm not even looking. Maybe I should. Okay. Verse 25. Therefore, each of you must, well, I'm going to just for save time, I'll just read from the uh, message. Verse 25. What this adds up to then is this. So Paul's like, you know what? I've been talking, talking, talking. Let me just break it down for you right here. Okay. We're going to break it down. Here's what it adds up to. No more lies. No more pretense. Tell your neighbor the truth. In Christ's body, we're all connected to each other after all. When you lie to others, you end up lying to yourself. Go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as fuel for revenge. And don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil any kind of foothold in your life. Did you use use to make ends meet by, by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. This D is called direction. Paul's giving us direction. Now Paul moves from your personal life to your life with other believers. So he'd been, he'd been talking about you. Now he's going to say, I want you as connected to other believers. Do you see the strong language here? He says, you must. And then IV, verse 25, therefore each of you must. Very strong language. This isn't an option. You must tell no more lies. Tell yourself and others the truth. We are all in this together, part of the same body. If my leg is hurting, my leg tells my brain it's hurting. We have to be truthful with each other, of course, always in love, never to hurt the other person. I, I was thinking about this when I was, when I was uh, preparing this lesson. I was, this is what I was thinking. You know, if, okay, in this natural realm, if my toe gets an infection, when, and Jill's not here, I was going to use her as an example. My toe gets an infection. It affects me. Get, go get medicine, surgery, whatever has to happen. If my toe don't start getting better, we get stronger medicine. We go back to the doctor. We, of course, we pray. Eventually, there comes a point in that time when we have to say, is this infection going to get into my bloodstream or to my, like, how far do I let this go before this infection infects my body, right? So do I cut the toe off? Because sometimes that has to happen. Sometimes we have to cut off a foot or just to save the body, Right? What's well, like that in the church body? If you are not living according to how the standard of God tells us to live, you cause infection in the body. And if you're, let's say you're the leg in the body, and you need to be honest and say, listen, I'm going through this. I believe my God is able. Can you stand with me and start believing and praying? Because we have to be honest with each other because if you're part of the, the body and you're hurting and you don't have us bring us in to start praying, see, when my leg hurts, it's telling my brain it hurts, Right? But what we do in the, in the Christian body is we try to, you know, hold that in. We try to be, listen, there is nothing wrong. There is nothing weak about saying, hey, I'm not doing good. I need you guys to pray for me. I have the victory, but I need to stand together and pray. Right? There's nothing wrong in that. And so we know how to pray. Now, here's what happens. If it gets to the place where the infection's so deep and you're so rotten on the inside and you don't want to change and you're infecting the body, One or two things are going to happen. You're going to have to get well or you're going to have to be cut off. We call that church splits. It's not healthy. It's not normal. That is not how God intended the body to work. We have to be healthy. We have to love. We have to be honest with each other. We have to be honest with ourselves. We have to communicate. That's the key. Okay. I got to move on to the next part because it's so good. Verse 26 says, In your anger do not sin. Can you be angry and not sin? The answer to that actually is yes. Paul has given us permission to be angry. He's saying it's okay to be angry. Say you're angry. Express it. Deal with it. But do not stuff it. Do not try to act like it doesn't exist. Do not bottle it up. Because when we do, it will eventually explode. And Satan will make sure it's at the wrong time and the wrong place. 
We all get angry, though it's a function of being human. I dare say without anger, we would have never won the American Revolution, the Civil War, the women's right to vote, school desegregation, or any other host of advances that came about when people got righteously angry and unleashed the power of justice and the Holy Spirit. I'd like to add, without us being righteously angry, abortion is never going to stop. We have to. We have to get really upset about that and storm the gates of heaven for that. So there is a righteous anger and a way to be angry that is, that is God okay with. God got angry and created the flood, which became the opportunity for renewal. Jesus got angry and destroyed the temple, driving out the money changers and those who um, was doing religious practices that wasn't of him. Their anger was a means to a righteous end, not just as ours should be. So to be angry... When you are angry, do not be ashamed to say in the moment, this is not right, I'm angry. If your anger and frustration has been bubbling all day, rising up and threatening to spill over, let it spill. Let it out. However that works for you. Some people need to scream. Some people need to go punch a bag. Some people need to go to exercise. Some people need to go pray. Whatever it works for you, it's not saying don't ever become angry. But when anger leads you to sin, that's not healthy. Anger should lead us to a righteous um, a righteous end, okay? It should be a way that I'm gonna, I, I, of course, I've never really had a big problem with anger, um, but I know some people who do, and I, I get upset because I don't understand that, and I'll say, if, okay, really, you're gonna be upset because LSU lost? I ain't mentioned no names. I'm just saying, let's get upset about abortion, <laughs> like, if we're gonna be that upset, but I don't understand that because that's not really my thing, but I do know this. I do know there have been times in my life that justice is a big deal for me. And so when something is unjust, I just can't hardly deal with it. And so I have to find a way to release that. And so, so Paul's saying here, hey guys, it's okay to be angry, but what we can't do is sin. So I want to, I want to tell you the difference. I know I'm running out of time. Um, if your anger and frustration is bubbling all day, rising up, do what you need to do. Go running, whatever. But don't be afraid to say, I'm angry. You merely are doing what the Bible says. Don't let the anger consume you. When it's out, when it's expressed, when you're allowed yourself to feel this most natural of human emotions, anger loses its power. You feel it like you feel it draining from you. God and those around you have heard it and felt it, and it no longer weighs on, only on you, but now it is shared. And as Jesus reminds us, a shared yoke with him is easy and his burden is light. Anger is powerful, but only, but only as a tool. I believe Paul wanted the people of Ephesus and LCC Berwick to know that we, are, that, we, that we damage ourselves and those around us when we allow a relationship or a day to end in anger. Anger must be walked through, but it's a landmark on the journey, not the final destination. It's a means to an end, an end of, reconcil end of reconciliation, an end of forgiveness. Be angry. Do not let the sun go down while you're angry. What I, guys, what I want to say about that is, Here's the difference between the right kind of anger and the wrong kind of anger. When the right, the right kind of anger will make you want to do something that's constructive. Like, I've got to pray about this. I have, I'm angry enough that I have to go talk to this person and get this out so it does not consume me. The wrong kind of anger is when, however it started, it starts festering. And that literally is a foothold of the enemy. And that would be fine if that's where he stopped, but that's not where he stopped. And so I've, I've met people who's become so angry that honestly, the devil has just literally taken over. So much anger. They cannot release it. It's like spewing venom on everybody. And it probably started out as something, truthfully, it probably started out as something um, they were hurt. 
their feelings were hurt? Probably by words. Remember how powerful the words are? And people get offended, then we get angry, and then we think about it. You know how it works. And we start replaying that moment and getting madder by the minute. And instead of right then going to that person and saying, I need to talk to you about this, or right then and saying, going to God, said, please help me get over this. I've seen it happen with death. You know, one of the stages of death is anger. And I've seen people get to that stage in the mourning process and never get past it. And literally die angry, bitter, and usually full of sickness. But we have gotten, and Paul's saying here, listen, it's an emotion. We need to learn to deal with it and deal with it right. Verse 27 says this, do not give a foothold to the devil. How do we give a foothold to the devil? There are so many ways. One, not being in agreement with God's promises for your life. Two, agreeing with what the devil says instead of what God says. That's when we start thinking and you know it's not the right thoughts, but you just believe in it, just steady believe in it. Well, you know, she really doesn't like you. You know, she said that. You know, she passed right by you and didn't say hi. So she probably doesn't like you. And we start believing all that junk. We just start believing it and believing it and believing it till it starts festering and we're getting angry, usually offended. And all that works together. They're kissing cousins. We get offended, bitterness sets in, anger, it all works together. And we got to keep ourselves in check, okay? And Paul's saying this is important. And Paul's talking to the Ephesians. I believe Paul's talking to us saying, hey, guys, I'm telling you this is a foothold the enemy takes. This is how he takes over. Now, I know a lot of your history here. And a lot of the history, this is exactly what's happened. People get upset. They get offended. They didn't like something. Then people start talking. People start agreeing. So it starts happening. And then before you know it, they're angry. And they're not going to step foot back in this church. That's when you know your anger has gone too far. That's when you know that had nothing to do with righteousness. That all had to do with, let's be honest, selfishness. Harboring anger and bitterness, the devil's work is to accuse and divide the family of God and to sow discord among them. When we harbor anger in our hearts, we do the devil's work for him. So stay away from those things and the devil never gets a foot in the door. If he can't get in, he can't kill, steal, and destroy you. By the way, that is his plan, to kill, steal, and destroy you. Oh. Next, Paul gives some very, I need prayer. Next, Paul gives some very special practical applications for a life that pleases God. Verse 28, he says, if you've been stealing, you must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. There's a great contrast that Paul makes here. Those who steal do so for their own personal gain. It doesn't matter if you steal by robbing or by dishonest business practices. The goal is the same. So you can have more. But the purpose of hard work is not only in getting, but enables us to give. So he's saying, look, son, it's a sin to steal. I mean, that's one of the ten, right? But he's saying, when you steal, it's all, for, it's all for selfish gain. But when you work hard, there's a pride that comes in that, that's good, that says, I work for this, now I want to give. You know, if I stole money from Miss Sarah and gave it in the offering, that cost me nothing. I'm just, basically that was sin. But if I worked hard for my money and paid my tithes, which is a commandment, then it cost me something to give back to God. And that's the kind of sacrifices God's looking for. Not to not, to, not say that stealing is not sin, it is. And Paul's saying this, he's like being very practical. He's saying, hey guys, don't steal. Be honest. I'm gonna bless you. I am your provider. So if, if the government has did you wrong, you pay the government, what they're owed, because I'm going to take care of you. God, that's how I live. God's always taking care of us. He's my provider. He's the one who, who pays my bills, right? 
And we got to live like that and believe that. Okay, the last thing is, uh, and that D is dependence. Nope, this last D is dependence. He closes this section of his letter. Oh, can y'all give me five minutes? He closes this section of his letter to the church in Ephesus by recapping what he had already said. Uh, Verse 29, watch the way you talk. Let nothing foul or dirty come out of your mouth. Say only what helps each word is a gift. Don't grieve God. Don't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all the cutting, backbiting, profane talk. Be gentle with one another, sensitive. Forgive one another as quickly and thoroughly as God and Christ forgave you. Try as we may, this is the dependence, we all have error with our tongues. James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. We know that there's no perfect men here. While we may never achieve perfect control of our tongues, I'm convinced that if husbands and wives would consistently apply Ephesians 4 and 29, which says, watch the way you talk, we would rarely see divorce. If parents practice this verse toward their children, we would see few children from Christian homes rebel against their parents. If we applied it towards one another in church, we would see fewer church church splits over personality conflicts or minor doctrinal issues. In short, Ephesians 4.29 is a verse that could bring radical change in all of our relationships if we would apply it um, consistently. The Greek word translated unwholesome, when he says don't let unwholesome come out of your mouth, unwholesome talk, means rotten, useless, or unprofitable. It was used to refer to as like rotten fish or uh, food. This kind of talk will not nourish anyone. It will contaminate and make you sick. It smells bad and creates an unpleasant atmosphere for everyone around. Then he says this in verses 30 and 31. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31 says this. Get rid of all anger, bitterness, rage, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. I'm not going to go into that because I don't have time. But listen to this, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ and God forgave you. It isn't that we must forgive because Jesus will forgive us. We forgive because we are forgiven. And it's not we don't forgive but to get forgiven. We give because we've already been forgiven. Guys, Paul is being very practical here. So what I want to say to the church today is I'm going to say, hey, guys, stop living like the old way of life. We're different. Act different. You're not of this world. You're not meant to fit in. You're meant to love the unlovable. You're meant to talk wholesome. You're meant to, you're meant to live in a world that's, you're, you're ambassadors to this earth. That means we're not from here, but we're living here. And so we're going to make a difference. We're going to represent the country we come from, and that's heaven. We're ambassadors. And so we have to represent Christ well. You know, one of the greatest compliments anybody could ever give anybody was, when I saw you, I saw Jesus. There was a guy, I'll end on this story. There was a guy, um, I've been to El Salvador lots of times, and there was this guy I met there that was working for King's Castle. His name was Wilmer. And Wilmer, when he got with our group, he was our tour guide, not tour guide, he was the, it was a missions trip, so he was like our missions guide. Um, and he did, but he didn't speak much English. And so he had another guy translate for him. So he's on the bus and he's talking, he's a microphone in his hand, he's talking just like this. And it was his first mission, like it was his first group to lead. And I sat on the bus, and I'm watching him, and literally, as I'm looking at him, I see the face of Jesus. And it was the coolest moment, because I'm looking at him talk, and I see Jesus talking. And I, I, I came, like, I shook my head, and it was Wilmer again, and I was like, so we spent the whole week with him, fell in love with him. I mean, couldn't talk. We had to have him, but I mean, just fell in love with his spirit, right? 
And so at the end of that trip, I was, we were, had a service and we were celebrating what happened for the weekend. I'm hugging Wilmer by and I have a translator and I said, um, hey, tell Wilmer that I saw Jesus in him. And so the translator said that, and he's very humbled, and he was, you know, thanking me and hugging me. And um, I go back to El Salvador like two years later, and Wilmer is now graduated from the Master's Commission School, and he's on the leadership team. And he, he hears that I'm coming, and his English is much better by this point. And he says to me, can I take you to lunch? And I said, yeah, that'd be great. And so I made sure with the directors it was okay. And so um, another student came with us. So he took me to this really pretty place. It overlooked this big lake and we set out on the thing. And so we got there and he's, and he's talking to me in very good English, I might add, in two years. And he says this to me. He says, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember when you came that first time I met you and you said to me, I saw Jesus in you? And I said, not really. <laughs> I really didn't. He said, yeah. so he's telling me what happened. He said, we were at the end, of, and he said, you saw Jesus. And then I remembered. And I said, yes, you were on the bus. You had a microphone in your hand. He said, every time I wanted to quit, every time I felt sorry for myself because my family was three hours away and I couldn't see them, every time another student did something to me that was ugly, I would hear your voice in English saying, I saw Jesus in you. And he said, I wanted to take you to lunch today. And I wanted to pay. And he's like, no, 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 no. He said, this lunch is going to cost me something. He said, every time I heard your voice, I was reminded that people were going to see Jesus in me. And he said, I want you to know I'm on the leadership team. I'm leading 20 missions teams out of the country of El Salvador this year. He said, and you were the voice that I heard every time I wanted to give up saying, I saw Jesus Hey, Berwick, we need to be that. We need people to see Jesus, not to build us up, but just to know that everywhere, you know, being accountable is not just me telling you what to do. Being accountable is I'm going to live my life in a way that the world is watching and they need desperately to see Jesus. Desperately, they need Jesus. So my accountability is going to be because people are watching my life and if they never, ever, ever see the face of Jesus, I'm going to make sure that when they see me, they see Jesus. Now, let me tell you how that happens. It happens by just what Ephesians 4 says. Get rid of all rage. Get rid of bitterness. Get rid of unforgiveness. Forgive. Life is short. Live your life worthy of the call. Remember that? Live your life worthy of the call. You've been given gifts. I've given you grace for the gifts. I've given you grace for people who have different gifts so they don't rub you the wrong way. You've had every single tool to succeed. Let's make a difference. Let's be Jesus to a lost and dying world. Let's be Wilmer and let the world know that Jesus is alive and well and you may not can see him or touch him, but he's in me and you will see him in me. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you live inside of us. I thank you that you've given us all power and authority over the enemy, all. God, you said all, that means Satan has none. So we take all power and authority to live this life worthy of our calling that you called us to. God, we ask right now that you would be so big inside of us, that you would consume our thoughts. God, give our mind the same mind that Christ had. Give us that same mind.
God, give our thoughts. God, every thought, God, let it be a thought from you. God, when Satan comes in with a thought, let us immediately catch it. Immediately. We're not giving him a foothold. He has no, no access into our life. Lord, I just thank you right now. I thank, that, thank you that you're going to fill us and seal us with your Holy Spirit that Satan can't even try to come in. And if he does, we'll know that we let him. And God, please let us not let him come in. I ask you right now, God, to give us a physical indication when he's trying to attack us and rise up to be the warriors you've called us to be to fight against the enemy. And God, I pray right now, I release the spirit of Jesus Christ in this place that every single believer in here would look like you, Jesus. That they would love like you. They would serve like you. They would talk like you. They would walk like you. Lord, that everywhere we go, people will see Jesus in us. Help us to be your people. Lord, I thank you for Paul and his letters to the church at Berwick tonight. We thank you for that wisdom and knowledge. And now we know the truth and we can be free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.